You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. And today we're talking about informed consent. We think we know what that means and how to create one that protects in case of a problem. But do we? Do we really know? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Michael Greenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Jim Gottesman, a urologist in Seattle and the founder of Dialogue Medical, a company that uses a computer-based model to create custom consent forms. We're going to be discussing how informed consents can save you time, grief, and sometimes money. Welcome, Jim. Uh, Welcome, Michael. Tell us about yourself and how you became interested in this concept of informed consents. bit of a story, and some of it's luck, kind of like finding penicillin in a a mold jar. I started to practice in Seattle in 1978, but in the early 80s, you know, personal computers came out, and I bought an Apple IIe, and because I was a math major at Berkeley, I had some little bit of interest in programming, and I started writing little programs for the Apple IIe. One of my medical assistants came up to me one day and said, this is crazy. You know, you go to four different hospitals and we send x-rays to all these different places and the patients are always getting lost and we need forms for all the different places. And I said, you know what, I'm going to write a program. So I sat down and wrote a computer program for my office with an Apple IIe and it gave people instructions on where to go for all these x-rays and tests. And then after I did that, it worked so well. I said, God, now what else can I do? And my next step is, we need consent forms because we were always doing it, and I thought backing it up with text would be a good idea, and a lot of patients came in without families, and they wanted to talk about the operation. Anyway, I started writing consent forms, and I created a package, and then came educational forms and all the other stuff. But it was basically, it was to get people to get x-rays that started it, and then it was just like, now what else can I do? And about 1985, I actually presented my first paper at the New York section of the American Neurologic Association in London. I actually schlepped a an Apple IIe and a printer to this meeting. And everybody just was, wow, is that fabulous? But, you know, nobody knew what to do with it then because, you know, PCs weren't really PC at the time. So it, it was more of a burden. But from the very beginning, I realized at that, I mean, I realized early that the quality and level of education and contact with the patient by giving them good informed consent was an absolute home run. I've seen the product. Basically, tell us what we're talking about here. What 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 does Dialogue Medical offer? First of all, informed consent is not just a piece of paper. I mean, it's a process of you know, communicating with the patient, you know, personally between myself and the patient about what we're going to do, what are the risks of what we're going to do, you know, what's the benefits, what we're going to do, what are the other therapies you could have done, what are the, you know, risks of those therapies. So it's not just a form, although that documents it, it's basically a, a an outline of what I'm going to go through with the patient in terms of discussing, you know, their, their treatment options. That's what Dialogue does. It basically captures the discussion that I would have and puts it down into a list of the things that we're going to do. What is your disease? And not in medical terms. And what is the procedure we're going to do? In addition to saying you're going to have a TERP, which is transurethral resection of the prostate, and they still, they wouldn't even understand what that meant, I would put removal of the prostate with a telescopic electric knife. And that's pretty understandable, even to the layperson, the, the gist of what I'm going to do. And then it lists the risks of the treatment and the other therapies that are available for the same problem and the risks of those and what we expect to gain and what happens if you don't do it. 
I just don't give them a form and say, here, sign this. I mean, I sit down with them and talk to them about it, but then I back it up by saying, here's this form. Look it over, read it. If you have any questions, ask me, and then they can go through it. And, and then there's the, the, the general consent text of this, uh, you know, a uh, general informed uh, operative consent uh, form that goes with it about anesthesia and other stuff that I might not go into in detail. But it, it goes into a, this whole process, and, and they sign it in my office well before the procedure. Anyway, I mean, the, the, the beauty of it is a couple of things. I think the patients are well-educated. I know that they're, they're informed. And you know what it does? It really cuts down on phone calls and questions and concerns, and I think it reduces anxiety. I think you're right. And how about reducing malpractice? Well, that's harder to prove. I mean, technically, you know, evidence-based medicine, we'd need a double-blind randomized study to prove that it really does that. I mean, I think that it does that. And there have been some articles, not in the urology literature so much, but there was an article in the in the orthopedic literature a couple of years ago where they looked at, at malpractice cases. And what they found was that if there was informed consent, the number of cases and the amount of the settlement was much less. They found that if the consent forms were done in the office rather than done in the pre-op room just before the procedure, that the settlements were less. They found that if you supplemented the consent form with a note in the chart so that in addition to just signing this form, you wrote something that you went through the whole process with them, it also reduced it. And so, and that's, of course, retrospective study. But most trials have to do with negligence as a rule. But informed consent clearly dulls negligence because if somebody is informed that a risk can happen, so let's say a person has a, a bladder suspension for incontinence, and one of the, ri the risks include that you may continue to be incontinent, and another risk is that you may not be able to urinate. And if those are clearly spelled out and it happens, very difficult to prove you were negligent if it was it was listed. And so people who say, you promised me you'd cure this and I would never wear a pad again. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. Well, if it's written in a contract, so to speak, and it's signed that you understood that, wow, I know deep in my heart without having double-blind randomized proof that informed consent is huge protection against being sued particularly because you take the informed consent issue out of the, the equation. And you are listening to Reach MDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Jim Gottesman, and we're talking about informed consents. Jim, what's the typical informed consent like? This, this sounds like you spend a lot of time. Does it, the average doctor do this in their office? That's one of the problems, of course. There is no typical process, and some, some, some physicians are much better communicators. Some people like to talk to the patient. Some people don't have, just don't do it well. I can't give you a standardized thing. I, you know, most of the, what I did for the 30 years that I've been practicing in Seattle is do urologic oncology, and it just requires discussion. You know, I mean, these are life-threatening diseases, and I, I rarely will spend less than an hour talking about prostate cancer surgery with somebody. Other diseases aren't quite so serious and it might be less, but I, I you know, I, I think that the time spent talking about the procedure really does cut down on subsequent phone calls and anxiety and stuff like that. You know, and I also back it up with forms about preoperative care and I've got postoperative instruction care and I've got educational forms that, that talk about the disease processes. I mean, there's very little that we do in our office that we don't have an educational form to hand out. I mean, from the simple hydroseals and circumcisions to, you know, robotic radical prostatectomy. 
it's not that you don't spend a little time with them, but you back it up with some text that they can take home and pictures and so that if the family's not there or their son wants to hear what you said, here he gave me, you know, he gave me this, really helpful. Right, especially if it's written in clear English, as you said, because I, we, physicians all know that when we talk to patients in the office, especially about something terribly frightening, the listening level at that moment of that patient is not very high. Actually, I, I won't. I, my office staff knows I, I get very upset if somebody comes in for a discussion of a major disease if they don't bring another set of ears with them. And I tell them, uh, bring, a, bring a friend. I usually bring their wife if they have one, but bring your son, bring a friend, bring anybody else, bring your, you know, your pastor, your minister. I actually, one guy bring a court reporter. And it wasn't that he was litigious. He just wanted to document what we talked about so he could review it. And I said, that's fine. I mean, I I was a little bit taken back, but, (laughs) you know, I think it's really important that you communicate. And, you know, there's two ways of looking. There are a lot of people who feel the more you tell them, the more more you will frighten them. And if you tell them all the risks and all the things, it'll confuse them and it will frighten them because that information is scary sometimes. And I'm just the opposite. The more you inform them and they feel like now, okay, now I know everything, and so I'm not afraid of the unknown. I think that's empowering to a lot of these people. I think they they want to know, and I think that giving a, a, a real good informed consent process is important. Listen, there's some docs out there that videotape everything and record it, and I think that would be daunting. That would be to the patient like this is all you already think you're going to sue me, but I don't like that. I I mean, put a hand on the guy's shoulder and let's talk about this disease. I think it would and. And then give, just give them the text that backs it up, I think works fine for me. I agree with you. You know, we've all heard the horror stories about if you talk a patient out of a procedure by scaring them too much, then they can also come back at you legally. But I don't, I don't buy that at all. And I don't buy it either. And I think the more time you spend with patients, the more information you give them, the happier they'll be. I agree. Jim, are there any problems in the, pro- in the process of informed consent? Actually, the way we do it, I don't think there's too much in the way of problems. Sometimes getting into the record can be a difficult situation to get the consent forms to the to the OR. In general, if you look at informed consent around the country, there have been articles written about meeting all the criteria for complete informed consent, and it's very, very rarely done. I mean, less than 10% of the time does true informed consent really get documented in the chart. That means diagnosis, the purpose of the procedure, the risk, the benefits, the alternatives. And so it's, is there a problem? Huge. Because it's not being done. And I mean, I think the government understands that. And you know, that's why CMS has specifically come out with its directives in the last few years that, that the informed consent process has to be beefed up. Because it's really, you know, I mean, when you're just, when you're batting one out of ten getting it done, you're, you're, you're making some mistakes. What is the federal government's role in this? Are you working with any federal government agencies? Every VA hospital in the United States now has the, pro- the program that we just talked about. I mean, it's part of their electronic medical record. And so every, all 158 VA centers now use the program. And they've had it in for more than a year, and the feedback has been fabulous. And, you know, there actually was a study done by the urologists at the Emory VA, and they did do a study comparing regular informed consent to the automated informed consent. The VA is completely paperless. I mean, they're way ahead of a lot of medical centers. I mean, they are completely paperless, and their informed consent process is done in front of a screen, and even the signature is captured on a little signature pad uh, like you're going to Home Depot. What they found was that the patients were really satisfied, and they found the application easy to use, and the, the consent form that was signed and that the El Paso VA was available at the Seattle VA the next day. 
I mean, that, that minute immediately. So it's really, it, it crosses the whole system. I mean, the VA is starting, the Naval Hospital and a couple of other, uh, the Naval Hospital in San Diego and a couple other DOD facilities are starting to use the pro- program. And CMS is, you know, it come out with their guidelines every year to, you know, increase the emphasis on the informed consent process that we need better forms and, and better documentation. I mean, it's going to, it's going to take a while, but I mean, the government is moving towards that. I want to thank Dr. Jim Gottesman, who's been our guest, and we've been discussing informed consents. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD233, the channel for medical professionals. This station was created for you, so we need your feedback, comments, and questions. Send your email to xm at reachmd.com, and we thank you for joining us.